So this morning, to continue my sermon series, my message series on In Praise of Amateurs, I'm going to be talking about teachers. And not just any old teachers, but really mentors. So I want you to start to think in your mind of who your mentors and who your mentor is. Really the best teachers I'm going to focus on. In order to do that, however, what I need to do with you is to put you into a time machine. Get in the Wayback Machine together and let's go all the way back to 1977. One year after our bicentennial, if you recall, I mean I was seven back then so I don't recall that much, but it wasn't that great a time in the history of our nation. We were post-Vietnam, we were post-Watergate, the starting post-industrialization. Maybe we thought our best days were behind us. There was high unemployment and high inflation, stagflation, the gas crisis, some SAM, blackouts, even fashions were vexed. I hope, as perhaps I have, you've hidden all those pictures of yourself in 1977. Whose idea was it exactly put to put together plaid prints and brown, big, thick corduroy pants? I don't know. Even look at the shag carpeting, you know, back then. Things just weren't right. Something was off. And even the music, you know, some of that once meaningful music from the 1960s, where a lot of those stars were, well, they're starting to get a little up there and they were starting to go rich. And some of them were starting to get a little lazy as well, too. And its place was disco with its sort of let's fiddle while Rome is burning sort of attitude. And disempowered black kids and disenchanted white kids were starting to put together what we would start to know as rap and punk, angry music, disaffected music. President Carter had it right, and he was blamed for it, but he was right that there was a malaise. The old heroes and stories seemed to be passing away, and we weren't quite sure as a culture what would replace those things. So into this time of cultural and spiritual national uncertainty, something emerged in the summer of 1977. Like the beginning of a scripture, it began. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Even trumpets heralded. Heralding is loud, that's good. Summer of 1977. The summer, especially for me at seven years old, the summer of Star Wars. The movie was absolutely unlike anything I had ever seen before, anything any of us had ever seen before cinematically. But the reason that Star Wars became a phenomenon was that it sprung from the depths of the soul. It was all about heroism, sacrifice, redemption, the search for an absent parent, the triumph, or at least the hope of the triumph of good over evil, the alignment of an individual life with a force, big F, a force larger than oneself, and because of the alignment with that force, the individual life starts to make sense and has meaning. For many people, the old cultural gods, they were dying away, and we weren't quite sure what was going to be in their place. Maybe those old things didn't have their providential power anymore, not enough to shelter us from the storms of life. But in Star Wars, at least, at least up on the screen, myth and meaning had reasserted its magnetism, its pull over us. And the prophet behind this great, sacred, yes, sacred story was a young George Lucas, a visionary. We can say all we want to about Joseph Campbell being the academic avatar of myth, but truly George Lucas understood the power of myth. That's why the movies made such an impression. I thought this past week of that original Star Wars trilogy, and kind of forlornly too, because HBO has been showing this past week 
the second trilogy, the prequel. Now, I think the second trilogy is sort of like a jelly donut that's unknown to you. At least, you know, I was, I was really excited when it was going to come out. Sort of like a jelly donut that's had the jelly sucked out of the middle of it. Still looks really good from the outside, but when you bite into it, it's just empty. It's hollow. No more jelly. There's no more of that stuff. That, that stuff that makes something what it is. The essence, the soul, the best part. It was missing. In the first trilogy, Lucas was a mentor. He was a mentor in the ways of hope, in the ways of the imagination, which are always the paths that our souls travel on. But in the second trilogy, he'd become something less. He'd become a mere expert, just showing off his tricks, maybe not trying to have us notice that this time the emperor was not wearing any clothes. It's kind of like George Lucas got tired of pointing the way to the great mystery and wanted to become himself a kind of god that he was the master, that he was the one who we all should look toward. That's not the way it is with best teachers. The best teachers, the mentors we have, they never confuse themselves with what they teach and preach and share about. They are not the subject itself. They are transparent to the light that shines through them. Think, with a little bit more clarity now as I invited you before, think of that best mentor, the best teacher you ever had. Could have been in first grade, could have been in your first job. Maybe you still know that person. Maybe they're no longer with us in this life. Yes, as we reflect, we know that they knew a lot, but it was something more. When you were with this person, you were hungry to learn, but it was something more than that, too. In the presence of your mentor, you were excited. You felt a sense of possibility. You could trust yourself, and hopefully, yes, they taught you a lot, and you were smarter because of them, you were more skilled because of them. But it was more than that. Finally, the mentors we know who lifted up our spirits and gave us who we would hope and come to be. They made us believe in the promise of this life that we share, the promise of your life. The best teachers inspire us, inspire you to see what we do not see already. And after they have left their imprint, this is really, I think, the litmus test to be able to tell an expert from a mentor, very often, the experts, after they've given us what they needed to give us, they go away. They've showed what needed to be shown. They know that their job has been completed in our life and the gift we keep on giving. Very different with experts who tend to want to keep and hold on to the information that they have. It's also why experts can be so amazingly, amazingly wrong. Check out these self-assured oracles from the past. Like Decca Record Company, in 1962, they wrote this. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out anyway. We're sure of this. That was the reason for rejecting the Beatles for a record contract. Often great ideas are breezily dismissed. A cookie store is a bad idea. Besides, the market research shows that Americans like only crispy cookies, not soft and chewy cookies like you make. These are the words in a rejection letter from a bank or two, none other than Debbie Fields. Mrs. Fields. Remembering the power, the power of hearing Darth Vader say, Luke, I'm not going to try it. <laughs> Luke, I am your father. Brought to mind this chestnut from 1927 from Harry M. Warner, none other than the founder of Warner Brothers Studios. Who the hell wants to hear actors talk, he said. Wrong. And I found this one particularly amusing as I discovered it as I was surfing the net. There is no reason anyone 
There is no reason anyone would ever want a computer in their home. That's Ken Olson in 1977, no less, the president and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation. It is so easy to laugh at experts when they're so wide of the mark. But when expertise isolates us from each other, it's not funny, it's tragic, it's sad. Think of another classic image from cinema, from movies. Maybe, at least in my opinion, the greatest movie that was ever made, Citizen Kane. Kane, who was the one-time orphan, crusading journalist and newspaper magnate, becomes the aging Kane as alone as any biblical prophet might have been, as alone as Shakespeare's King Lear was, sequestered off from life in his magnificently constructed Xanadu, which had become his tomb. In the arrogance of his expertise, he's turned away from everyone who once loved him. In his expertise, he is absolutely isolated. You remember his famous dying words, the opening words? The mysterious utterance that, at least for the people in the movie, never will be solved. But we see it. We know it. We see it so horribly, so tragically, in that last scene, going up in flames with all the rest of his life's possessions. Rosebud, child's beloved sled, a source of glee and exploration. Nothing more and nothing less. All that power Citizen Kane had, all that wisdom, all that knowledge, all that money. And at the end, what did he want? He wanted a sled. He wanted to experience himself as an explorer once more. So much loss and there was so much gain. Gospels ask, what does it profit us if we gain the world but lose our soul? Now, too often, in too many churches, this is expressed in a variety of questions that says, have too much pride, and I'm telling you, you will go to hell. That's not the best understanding of what this question really asks us. There's a more nuanced interpretation. Imagine, imagine losing your soul not as empowering yourself for all eternity, but losing your soul as a gradual slipping away of the spark that animates you and makes you who you are. That inner light that shines brightest when we live a life of creativity and wonder, full of the capacity to be amazed. Half a millennium ago, Dante, in his poetic tour of the afterworld, perceived something psychologically acute at his imagining of what hell is. At the very center, the very core, it wasn't hot at all. It wasn't hot. It was ice cold. Ice cold. The inner circle of hell was frozen. Its inhabitants were immobilized, stuck there, not able to move. Imagine this. Just imagine this as the final resting place of an isolated expert, encased in his or her own certainty. To be so fully locked in that they are locked out from the possibility of knowing themselves or their world anew. That it's all been done before, it's all been seen before. That is horrible as I can imagine hell ever doing. It's likely that the greatest devils any of us will ever know are the former angels that we could not let go of. The greatest devils we'll ever know are the former angels that we could not let go of. Because they visit us for a while, and then it's their nature to go. That's what the meaning of attachment is in the Buddhist sense. It's a kind of suffering in our souls 
when we become so identified with part of our lives, we become so identified with our jobs or with our relationships or with our money or with our prestige or with our affluence, that it's all that we think that we are. And that is attachment and that is suffering. Because what we're really doing is we're saying, this is what is and there can be no more. So we stop reaching out towards life, able to apprehend what is there and what we still have to learn as explorers. Now go back once again, return to your favorite teacher, your mentor. How different did you feel in their presence? The genius that they possessed was that they had to share what they had to give. They knew and they understood the ancient proverb that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can make us really prideful. Perhaps you heard this from a few years ago. They like to talk about that Unitarian Universalist youth, listen up over here, Unitarian Universalist youth have the highest SAT scores of any kids of any American denomination. Aren't we special? Well, I mean, that's not a bad thing, certainly. But it's a morally neutral thing. It says nothing about us other than that we are bright. But mentors show us, shape us even, into using our gifts toward the betterment, toward the good, toward the shaping of something more than just our own ego. So knowledge, yes, can puff up. But as the proverb says, love builds up. Love builds up. It enlarges anyone who comes into touch with it. This kind of love, remember that that's the kind of love we've been talking about this last couple weeks. That's the kind of love that makes an amateur an amateur. Motivated by love to do what they do. At Wellsprings, we aim to be explorers together, to be, yes, lifelong learners. That to be our creed. And you'll see, and you've heard us talk about already, our springboards. Really take a look at them. People are asking us right now, how do we get involved? How can I form relationships? How can I get to know other people? How can I grow spiritually myself? Well, that's why springboards are there for you, so that all of us can grow together. There are opportunities to go deeper into our explorations, to challenge each other in the spirit of love, knowing that what we know now is not all that we are called to know. And who we are now is not all that we are called to be. And so to expand in fun, to expand in spirit, to expand in fellowship, we take the time and look at those offerings. Take the time and see, you know what, is this worth 12 weeks of my life so that I can go deeper, so that our creed can be, we learn together, we coach each other. Ministry here at Wellsprings is not a spectator sport. We want you to get up off the bench, to get involved, coach one another, encourage one another, share with each other this kind of love, this kind of wisdom, which is so much more than mere knowledge, builds all of us up. It's kind of like Bill Sapphire's valedictory column at the end of 50 years as a journalist. He wrote, when you're done learning, you're done. When you're done learning, you're done. The expert wants to amass power, bless you, and then survey all that they have done. The expert wants to learn more in order to hold on. The explorer wants to learn more in order finally to give it back to the source of the gift itself, which is life. This is what the truly great and the truly humble and the one and the same both know. This is Socrates on his deathbed, the most revered and hated man in Athens, saying that he is the most ignorant man in the entire city because he knows all that much more that there is for him to know. This is Helen Keller talking about the difference between sight 
which many had and she would never possess, and vision, the difference between sight and vision. Vision which many of us hunger for so much and she possessed in abundance. True genius always points beyond itself. It always serves something greater. It always serves something greater. And experts don't know something that explorers really truly do know. Truly do know. Explorers recognize that the circumstances of life change, that the one thing you can count upon is impermanence. And so they deploy and they use their gifts as explorers do, even as difficult circumstances begin to present themselves. A decade ago, over a decade ago, in the war-torn city of Sarajevo, there was a man who saw horror and tried to give back something of beauty. Just a small ripple. A small ripple as our values and our beliefs here at Wellsprings talk about that that pebble dropped in upon you can never tell how far it will reach. The first thing we got to do, we got to drop our pebble in. His name was Vedran Smilovich, and he sat playing music day after day in front of a bakery in the war-torn city of Sarajevo, where just days before, a mortar had struck a bread line, people waiting to get fed, the same thing going on in Baghdad right now, and killed 22 people who were waiting in late May 1992. He was at one time the most valued member of the Sarajevo Opera Orchestra, a body of musicians who were the best in all the land, the best in what had been known as Yugoslavia and what was falling apart at that time. Being just a cellist, he knew there was not much he could do in matters of war and peace. He was not a statesman. But even so, for 22 straight days, he braved sniper and artillery fire to play Albinoni's moving Adagio in G minor, which was itself composed from a fragment that was found amongst the bombed-out rubble of Dresden after it was destroyed in World War II. He was just a musician. He was just a cellist. He came to a certain street corner every day, dressed in his formal black wear, sitting in a fire-charred chair. He played his cello, knowing he might be shot, knowing he might be beaten. He still played. Day after day after day, he came to play, play the most beautiful music that he knew. If he was an expert, he would have cursed his destiny. He could have said, it's all over for me. My gift is being wasted by this war, and no longer do I have my lovely orchestra to play with. I might never play again. My lot in life has become so horrible, so miserable. I'm just going to pack it in right now. But this was not his response. His song remained the same. He just found a new reason to play and a new manner in which to play it. His greatest angel would change form, and so it wouldn't be the thing that would bedevil him. And so day after day after day, for 22 straight days, his music was stronger than hate. His courage, think about that, his courage stronger than fear to sit in that one chair. And the miraculous thing happened. In time, other musicians were captured by his spirit. Croats and Serbs, Muslim and Christian, his act of courageous, act of courageous contagion. He had the opportunity for other people to join him. And so day after day, the flock kept growing, overcoming together the opportunity to change from despair, to resist that temptation and find hope once again. Robert Folgerman, some of you may know, the new writer and minister, tells this story, and he likes to imagine that in the year 2050, there will sit in the center of Sarajevo 
a monument of a lone cellist, that Vedran Smilovich will be a national hero. Yet, we can say that even if this hope doesn't come to pass, the cellist's work will not have been in vain. For those who were there, and now for those of us who hear this story, we know that there was at one time a courageous lone cellist armed only with his instruments, offering his only beautiful sound to a world that would seem to have evolved into chaos and noise and war. Smilovich was gifted by this life, and he gave back to the source that was his gift. I dare to say at some point in the future, maybe two hours from now, you will forget his name as well. You will forget perhaps the city and time, but you will remember this true story of a lone musician. He played his instrument instead of remaining silent. You now carry him with you. Over an ocean and a decade later, his wisdom now lies with us. We may take someday, in a small way, we may take his heroism to be fuel for the upbuilding of our own hearts. And so we will hand over the meaning of his life that's been given to us without ever breathing a word of his name. He will become just one small link, one small link in that necessary chain that binds goodness over the ages and the generations of meeting hate with love of overcoming despair with hope. The truth, the truth for all of us, any of us and all of us, is that we don't know, we have no idea where the meaning of our lives will end. You don't know it, I don't know it. It's like a light from a distant star, yes, long, long ago and far, far away. It is like light from a distant star that in reality has gone out. But we now, across the universe, as John Lennon sang, we now, across the universe, are now just starting to see that light. We know that our lives and the actions in them will emanate past our time on this earth, and often long after we have left the scene. I think it's true that only the most famous of our lives will be remembered in name for living. Let that sink in for a while. It's a little bit of the Buddhist meditation I like to do. Think of the time when I will be entirely forgotten. It doesn't feel so good to think about, but it's inevitable. Well, maybe not inevitable. Of all the people who have ever lived, only the most infinitesimal of a fraction of a whisper of a percent will actually have their actual names recalled for having lived. So if you're concerned with the personal immortality of your individual name, you will probably achieve that only in one of two ways, by saving many, many lives or destroying many, many lives. You will be remembered for either being profoundly right or profoundly wrong, profoundly good or profoundly evil. And so actually I hope one of the things Wellsprings might do is give rise to you sitting here in our midst, maybe one of you, well, maybe the name Wellsprings itself, will be one of those sources. I hope we can equip each other to be one of those names that echoes down the generation, but we can't tell. Well, if it's the latter, profoundly evil, I really advise you against doing that, but that is the other way to be remembered. Even, I gotta tell you, even building a building with your name, and you go to an art museum and you see the so-and-so stairwell, or the so-and-so drinking fountain, or the so-and-so, I'm not kidding, I saw this once, urinal, you know? I mean, it, it's silly what people will feel the need to have to put their names on to ensure their longevity. But in the end, you'll just be known in the so-and-so urinal, and you'll become a joke in someone's, you know, message someday. The meaning of the life fades, even if the name is recalled. However, however, if what you are after 
is not the remains of your name, but the remains of your meaning. And rest assured, there is no act of justice, no act of kindness, no deed of compassion, ever small enough that it is wasted and it is not handed on to someone who will follow us in that link of that great chain of being and goodness and joy and love. The movement of our universe, although it can seem at times dauntingly impersonal, is not ever indifferent to our presence. I never get that when people talk about the universe as an indifferent place. It's the universe that happened to produce us, magically, miraculously. We can be indifferent to each other, maybe that's what we're talking about. Sadly, we are often indifferent to each other. But the universe, the universe is many things. It is glorious, it is perplexing, it is mysterious, it is terrifying, it is beautiful, it is joyous. But the word indifferent is never a word that I would use to describe our universe, not with all of its abundance. In our lives, though, bringing it back down from the cosmological level to us, the cone of our influence, sort of have you ever seen, when I lived in South Florida, I became very attuned to these things, you know that, that cone of projected where the hurricane mites come to land? Well, that's how it exists in our life as well, too. We have a projected cone of influence, and we don't know exactly wherever our actions will come to rest. Our cone of influence extends, and it reaches where our hands will never touch, but where our hearts will come to be. And so we are here to carry the meaning of each other's lives forward. We are here for each other. This is the truth of what is known as interdependence. Everything, for good or for ill, everything that we do touches someone or something else. So may our reaching out be for goodness, and may our lives, like that star, continue to sound and continue to have light long after, inevitably, we who have left this scene. Amen. May you live in blessing.